everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth, sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin our time this morning with a word of prayer, and I want to just update you that Isla um, Galliart, we had prayed in the first service on second uh, last week for her. Uh, she has um, there was concern that she had tumors, and this last week they they did uh, confirm that she does have tumors, and so she'll be going into. Um, chemotherapy this week, and so we want to be praying for her and pray for her family, and so we're going to, I'm going to do that right now. Lead us in a word of prayer and ask for God's blessing and blessing on his word. Let's pray. So Father, thank you. Our hope is in you. Uh, Father, we've sung about the resurrection, and that is what gives us hope. And so God, you're the God of uh, our bodies, and you're the, you're the God who's watching over Isla, Lord. Um, this little girl, Lord, we would just ask that you would Help her, give her all that she needs as she goes into um, these chemotherapy treatments. We pray, God, if this is the way you want to bring healing, we pray bring healing. Uh, but maybe, Father, is another way. And we would ask that you would even, we know that you can uh, just simply heal by the, just the, the spoken word, your word. And so, God, we would pray that you would do whatever it is that would bring glory to your name. And um, our desire is for her healing. We pray for Josh and Kaylee. We pray for Mike and um, Beth, the grandparents. We pray, Father, for them. Uh, we just ask that you would give them what they need as well. Uh, uh, Lord, we love our, our children, and uh, so we know that if we love our children, how much more you love and care for uh, our children. So we would uh, just lift them up to you and pray for your comfort. Give us wisdom to know how to continue to minister to this family uh, as they go through this time. And we pray for your honor and glory. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that it can uh, really break through what we need to have broken through in our lives. Father, we are living in a broken and fallen world, as you know, and it presses upon us and causes us to not understand rightly what you have for us, particularly when it comes to work and rest. And so we pray, Father, that today your word would break through and help us to better understand what you have for us in, um, in work and rest. So. Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the past few years, we've been talking about culture, and culture is that which is our customs and our beliefs, the institutions that we have, the art that we have. Really, it's simply the way we do things. Now, if you ever want um, to, to get a fresh look at your own culture, just simply travel internationally. In the late 1990s, I was able to travel to the Ukraine, and I remember the first time having kind of that aha moment that we do things here differently in the West than they do in the East, in, in European, uh, Eastern European. And uh, it, was the, it was when we got off the airplane and we were told as foreigners that we, required, we were required to purchase life insurance, which in of itself is not a comforting welcome to a country. <laughs> 
There's a little singular windowed booth, somewhat like those old-fashioned ticket windows at the movie theaters. And so we got in what we thought was a line to get our life insurance, but quickly noticed that individuals were just brazenly walking up to the window and going in front of us, kind of what we would call butting, butting in front of us. This happened over and over again so that we who were the first to get to the booth were the last to get insurance. Come to find out, this is how it works in the Ukraine and Eastern Europe. You push your way to the front. And while that might end up as a tussle in America, it's fine to do there in the Ukraine. So once you get that concept, man, is it fun. <laughs> It's really freeing. I mean, you can use your, you know, your chicken wings here, and you can get yourself up to the front of the line, and nobody's bothered by it. <laughs> See, we don't realize how our culture determines our attitudes and actions. Now, if you remember, we've said over and over again, the culture is, comes downstream from religion. And when I say religion, I mean that what we believe is ultimately for our good or ultimately our good. So in a former, former communist country where there is no God, or really where you are the God, an, an audience of a flourishing life, sorry, comes only when you elbow your way to the front. Well, consider the first recipients of the book of Genesis. Moses is the author. The original audience were slaves. Slaves of Pharaoh who came from the line of Abraham. At the end of Genesis, we are left with this man named Israel, or we would commonly know him as Jacob. We are left with this man Israel and his family, a family of 12 sons and children and their grandchildren who were living in Egypt. Certainly a large family compared to the standards today, but not what we would, we would equate to be a nation. But years have passed. In fact, it's been 430 years that have passed. Think of that. Twice the time that we have been a nation as the United States. So the second book of Moses, Exodus, describes these original recipients of Genesis in this way. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And they were slaves. So their understanding of life was informed by their identity as slaves. So listen how their condition is described in Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to begin at verse 11. So Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Therefore they, they the, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and uh, Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So now listen to some repetitions of word here, a word here. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work. 
as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Work. Their understanding of the purpose of work was defined by their identity. They were slaves. And as slaves, they knew nothing about rest. So these words in Genesis 1 that we've been looking at these past few weeks, these past five weeks, are being heard by individuals who only understand life as defined by the gods of Egypt, Pharaoh being one of those gods. And that their identity were slaves, that they were cogs in Pharaoh's machine. They were pack animals. They were individuals who just simply had brute force. They were laborers in the brickyards. They were harvesters in the fields, all to build Pharaoh's cities, constructed around the gods of their Egyptian world. And rest was unheard of. Not in any way a part of their weekly rhythm. And really nothing has changed in the 21st century. Our understanding of work and rest will be defined by the culture we live in. Unless his truth, God's truth, breaks through our understanding and changes our hearts. And so the main appeal as we consider the passage that we have had just read for us comes from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11. And that verse says this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest or just simply work hard to rest. Work hard to rest. Now, where we're going to go this morning is we're going to start with restlessness, and then we're going to move into God's work, and then we're going to look at rest, and then we're going to end surprisingly at our work. So let's start with restlessness. We live in a restless world, and since the fall, that has always been the case. We have always lived in a restless world ever since the fall. Again, we, we go back to these, the original audience, the nation of Israel, and what we forget about this, these people, this nation, is that they didn't know much about their God. They certainly didn't know anything about his character. And we know this by Moses' question when God had drawn Moses out into, well, he was out in the Arabian desert taking care of his sheep, and God drew him to this bush, this burning bush that just would not be consumed. And it's there where we hear this encounter. It's in Exodus chapter 3. When the Lord saw, when Yahweh saw that he had turned aside to see, God called, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
And God goes on and tells Moses about his people, that he's seen his people there in Egypt, that they are oppressed. And so he says, I'm going to save them. I'm going to bring them out. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him to let my people go so that they can worship me out here at Mount Sinai. And so here's Moses' question. Look at verse 13. So just a little bit further down, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, well, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? And then basically saying, who is he? What's he like? What is his name? Moses asks, what shall I say to them? So they didn't, they didn't know this God of whom is calling them out. And so this is what God says to them. He says, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In essence, God is saying, I am the eternal one, the one who has no beginning, the one who was, who is, and who always will be, the God who is eternal, the one who is over all of this creation, over time, the one who is over all the gods of Egypt. This is the one who is calling you to myself. So when Moses reads Genesis 1 to these slaves, they have no inkling of their noble birth as image bearers of this God of heaven. They have no inkling that they are kings and queens here on earth of their heavenly king. They have no sense of work as defined by the only true God, and nor did they have any conception of rest. They were restless like us. We have always been restless since the fall of humanity. We all feel that frantic pace, the frantic pace, the restlessness of the world around us. There are all kinds of outward experiences of this restlessness. For example, consider the tyranny of the sundial. As far back as 200 BC, people were complaining about this new technology. The technology of the sundial and what it was doing to society. See, the Roman playwright Plautus turned his frustration into poetry. He wrote, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish ours. Confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. <laughs> the tyranny of the sundial. <laughs> we outwardly feel the frantic pace, the restlessness of the world. Well, we fast forward to the 6th century and St. Benedict, our well-meaning ancestor who organized the monastery, Monastery around seven times of prayer each day. And by the 12th century, the monks had invited, invented the mechanical clock to rally the monastery. Which then led into 1370, where the West's relationship to time changed dramatically. For it was in Cologne, Germany, where the first public clock tower was erected. See, before that time, you know, time was natural, determined by the sun and the season. So the longer days in the summer, shorter days in the winter, rhythms were defined by farming. Patience was just part of life. You can't make those crops grow any faster. But the clock changed all that. 
It created artificial rhythms. The clock began to tell us when to wake up. This mechanical machine shortened our literal rest. The employer began to use a clock to determine how long we worked. And then Edison came along, 1879, and now you have light that enables you to stay up past sunset. See, before the light bulb, the average person slept 11 hours. <laughs> Today, the average American gets just slightly less than seven hours per, ni per night. And some of you are saying, oh, if I could just have seven hours. And then some wise individual during World War I came up with daylight savings. Daylight savings time was instituted first by Germany, then England and France. The United States followed. The hope of these countries involved in the conflict was that it would conserve energy. With more daylight hours, people would spend more time outside and less inside, thus not using up as much energy in their homes, or so the supporters theorized. All I know is I lost an hour last night. Restless. Technology that began in the industrial age that has exponentially sped up has always promised to provide labor-saving devices. So this was the promise and the expectation. In the 1960s, futurists from sci-fi writers to political theorists thought that by now we'd all be working far fewer hours. One famous Senate subcommittee in 1967 was told that by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours a week. Yeah, for 27 weeks a year, remembering there's 52 in our year. Everybody thought the main problem in the future would be too much leisure or simply rest. What they didn't take into account was the fallen human condition, restlessness. When Adam and Eve bought into the lie of Satan that the flourishing life of work and rest could be achieved by being independent of one's creator, to be a law unto themselves and to define work and rest by their own standards, on that day they entered into a restless state. And they were restless in Moses' day, slaves working to satisfy the gods of their world. So their work was defined by working hard, producing the proper quota for their taskmasters, and then avoiding the whip. So that avoiding the whip was their definition of rest. And it hasn't changed much. The physical whip has been exchanged for something much more sinister and ever-present. It's the whip of our conscience that has been informed by the lies of the gods of this world. Let me just name four of those gods. Let me name four. Prosperity, pleasure, purpose, and productivity. Prosperity. 
Born with a restless soul, prosperity promises satisfaction and rest once we've reached some prosperous state or status. And so we work long hours realizing that the more hours we work, the greater potential of prosperity. But what we discover is that the line of prosperity, it just keeps on moving. We're just never completely satisfied. We are slaves. Pleasure. Born with a restless soul, pleasure promises satisfaction and rest. So we work for the weekend, or we work for the vacation, or then we work for the next vacation. We are slaves to pleasure. Purpose. Born with a restless soul, purpose promises a satisfaction and rest by finding purpose in our work. So we orient our lives around our work so that when someone asks us what we do, we really believe that what we do defines who we are. And so we are always looking for that title that will impress. We are slaves to our purpose. Productivity. Born with a restless and pro, uh, restless soul, productivity promises satisfaction and rest. And you know this is your God when you get angry by all the people interrupting what you wanted to get done that day. So as you go home and your spouse says, how was your day? And you say, I got nothing done. And then you tell them all the things that you did. And they say, I thought you didn't get anything done. I didn't. I didn't get what I wanted to get done. We're a slave. And I'm sure we could name many more. What is common for the restless soul is the unrelenting whip of our conscience that produces shame and guilt when we are not working. You should work more. Restlessness. So, with our shared slave stories, with Moses' original audience, we learn of our origins, particularly as it relates to work and rest in our passage this morning. So let's look at work. Let's look at work. First, the first thing we learn here about work is that it exists before the fall. That God worked and calls us to work but it is work as he defines it. So to our passage, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, no wasted words here, and behold, serves as a speed bump. We are to stop and recognize the narrator's declaration of what God saw, and this is what God saw. It was very good. See, up to this point in his creative activity, God was pleased with his creation. It was on day three, three, when, when dry land was exposed, when seas were created, and the narrator states, and God saw that it was good. On the same day, vegetation and fruit trees were created, and we read the same words, and God saw that it was good. It was on the fourth day that the sun and the moon with its seasons were created, and God saw that it was good. And he created birds and sea creatures on the fifth day, and God saw that it was good. It was on the sixth day that God created livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, and God saw that it was good. 
So that up to this point, God looks at his creation and it is understood that it is good. But then we come to the creation of humanity, the male and the female. And it is here where, we fir- where first we are told to behold. First time it's been used in the, New, in the, in the Old Testament, behold. We're to pay attention. Up to this point, everything is good. But when you add the male and the female, humanity, created in the image of God, the recognition is, this is very good. Now, in revealing this goodness, God is having the writer do something for us. See, God does not need to look to see whether or not what he had just made was good. Is that good? Uh, Is that very good? I don't know. No, that's not what God is doing. See, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, no one is good except God alone. So there is no one better. There is no one more satisfying. There is no one more wonderful. There is no one more enjoyable than God. So naturally, the outcome of God being good is that all he does is going to reflect his goodness. But people with restless souls like ours, unfamiliar with this creator God, need to hear it. We need to know he is good. And he makes good things. This creator God, out of the essence of his goodness, is working, is working, is working on our behalf. He does so not because we're the greatest good, but because he is. And when his image bearers depend upon him, when we need him, it glorifies him. So for the slave who works and works and works to satisfy his or her gods, and that God says, keep on working. This is really good news. God works on behalf of his people. So we're shocked. We're shocked as slaves to learn that the creator God works for our good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. Now, these three locations, uh, heavens and earth and hosts, it's referring back to the creation story of chapter 1. It's sky, it's, it's sky, land, sun, moon, and stars. See, all the raw resources and seasons necessary, all that God has willed and designed for his creation, now is set in place, ready to be cultivated by his image bearers. Now, just one other detail with the Hebrew word for host is this, that it can be used for armies or stars or angels, but what is in common with these references is the concept of something being organized and disciplined. So this is a planned, organized, and designed creation, and thus there is purpose. It is for all of humanity. It is not haphazard. It is not given to chance. Oh, no, it's ordered. And notice, too, that it is, verse 1, it is finished. The creation is no longer in some kind of process, but rather it's been brought to completion so that God has coded into all of creation everything needed. It is complete for humanity to procreate and cultivate. 
creation was God's work. Look at verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. See, God doesn't want us to miss it. Work is good. And God worked on behalf of us. Now there are two Hebrew words for work. One is a reference to a raw, unskilled labor, and the second word, and not surprising, the word used here, designates skilled labor that is performed by a craftsman or an artesian. It requires finesse and professional skill. So Moses' original audience, who only experienced, for the most part, work in the sense of the raw, unskilled labor kind of work, treated like animals, now they're discovering that they're made in the image of God and that they are as image bearers that God intends their work to reflect his finesse, to reflect his skill and his craftsmanship. This is what God is calling his people to do, to work like this. But they discover something else. Rest. 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 So God blessed the seventh day. And this is how he blessed it. He made it holy. He set it apart. Now, have you caught the movement of the narrative? Think about the last few weeks that we've been going through here, the movement. Everything is ascending on the first week of creation as a pattern for God's people. Everything created for the benefit of humanity is good. So you think of all the, all the things that humanity gets to use, the raw resource. This is good. Then creation of the male and female. Humanity is very good. But now we come to the seventh day, and it is holy, set apart. The seventh day is set apart for two reasons. Necessity and purpose. Necessity and purpose. Purpose. Let's look at necessity. See, God, who never sleeps, who never grows weary, who is always on his game, doesn't need to rest in the sense of weariness. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's infinite. He's an infinite being and needs no, not to recharge his batteries. So why did he rest? Because he knows our frame. He knows our frame. Before the fall, God knew our frame. See, we're made in the image of God, and so before the fall, structurally and functionally, we are whole, yet we are finite beings who need rest. So out of the necessity, he knew we needed to stop working. Now, isn't it interesting that we don't hear the word Sabbath here, but it comes from the word Shabbat, which literally means to stop. In his book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer writes this. He says, think of the images that come to us through lifestyle advertising in our social media feeds or that trendy magazine on the coffee table. 
The couple lounging in a king-size bed over breakfast and coffee, organic linen spilling onto the floor. (laughs) The photo-perfect picnic at the beach with wine and cheese. A 20-something playing the guitar on the couch while watching the rain fall outside. Goes on, he says, whether they are selling a new bathrobe, a down comforter, or a piece of furniture, almost all of them are images of Sabbath, of stopping. Sabbath sells because our souls are restless. So, again, what a surprise! What a surprise! to the slaves when they hear of all of God's Sabbath commands. When he says you need to give the land Sabbath and you need to give the animals Sabbath and you need to give your servants Sabbath, you need to have a Sabbath. You need to just stop. (laughs) He says this is crucial, God says, to the flourishing. Uh, And and so the distillation of what it means to be in covenant with the Lord, he then gives us in the Ten Commandments this, Exodus chapter 20, you remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. Then he goes back to the, what we just read in Genesis chapter 2. For in six days, Yahweh even made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He knows our frame. It is necessary. So much so that as, as, as much as possible, work Five days for your employer, work one day for yourself, shopping, paying the bills, oh yeah, and mow the lawn, here it comes again, and then stop and lounge in a keen-sized bed eating breakfast, drinking coffee, and make it to church too, same time. Go to the beach, beach, and drink wine and eat cheese and play your guitar on the couch watching the rain or whatever else gives you rest because it is a necessity. But the seventh day does something even more powerful. It gives purpose. And God models for us that purpose in that confusing statement at the beginning of verse 2. Look again. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Now, wait a minute. I thought we had determined that he had finished his work on the sixth day. So what does it mean God finished his work on the seventh day? Well, after giving the male and female everything earthly needed, including one another for a complete and beautiful and satisfying life, including a perfect and unbroken, unmarred fellowship with God, the only thing not complete 
in a sense, to his work was the contemplation, admiration, and enjoyment of it. So in that sense, God finished his work. See, see, work is not something that we just do. It's, it's always towards something. We, work is not in of itself the end. It is always towards some other end. And so the rest that God experienced and now really informs the rest he wants to give restless souls a, a rest of finished work. It's, it's a rest of finished work where, you, where we, we, we contemplate, we admire, and we enjoy his work first, which brings us back to Hebrews 4.11. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, which when we read that phrase or you hear that phrase, we have to immediately ask, what rest? And what has come before that requires a therefore? Let us therefore strive. Well, the Hebrew author New Testament now, is reflecting back on the story of God's people, the former Egyptian slaves in whom God has uh, taken them out of Egypt. God brought them through with some miraculous works uh, through the sea and has provided for them as they're out in this wilderness. And they get to a moment in which, despite the long odds of what God is calling them to do, and that is to go into the promised land, really a test uh, from God, a test to see if they will trust in his goodness, See, he was promising them rest in the promised land. But they would have to trust him. And tragically, they did not. They disobeyed. They followed our first parents, Adam and Eve, in autonomy, and found no rest. So the end of Hebrews 3.19, it reads... So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So it is that story that then the Hebrew author turns his audience and us to the spiritual reality of how to find rest for our restless souls. Or maybe I could even say how to strive for rest. So let me read for you Hebrews 4 verses 1 through 10. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and it does, it still stands. God is wanting you to have rest. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest... But those who don't believe, look at this, as he said, those who don't believe, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. I'll tell you where it is. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Well, when is that day? Today. Right now. 
today. Saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, speaking of them, the one that came after Moses to take them into the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. But he has spoken of another day. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And the question I have to the text is this, that last phrase. What work is God referring to that God has rested from his works? Well, it's this. The work of the cross. From the fall, God was working, making a way for restless sinners who are naturally in rebellion to him, who by their nature want to be autonomous of him, to define the flourishing life in whatever way I please. The way he worked was to become a man, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and he lived a life in perfect dependence upon the Father for all things. Work as God intended. He lived a life in obedience to him and he went to the cross for the rebellion and unbelief of all the elect and to receive the wrath God swore, they shall not enter my rest. And just like the first creation when God contemplated and admired and enjoyed his first work and said, it is finished. So our Lord and Savior's last words on the cross were, it is finished. <laughs> His work is finished. This is what he's done on our behalf. What God is is who would work on behalf of humanity who are in rebellion to him. This is the great God that us slaves get to be introduced to. He finished the work for us. Our work of salvation, the work of salvation is complete. And this is what it means to rest when you trust in him and that work. And when you do, then you stop and you gather and you do like we did, have been doing. We contemplate and we admire and we enjoy the work of God on our behalf at the cross. Until you rest in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, you will never rest. All the promises of the external rest of breakfast in bed and walks on the beach and strumming your guitar, watching the rain, you will still be restless in your souls. It was St. Augustine who was living in a much slower time called the fourth century and yet, yet no less restless famously said, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So when the Hebrew writer says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of a disobedience, what he's talking about is it's a disobedience of not believing. He is calling us to believe. This is what we strive for, belief. 
He is calling us to turn our back on our autonomy and independence of him and trust him, be dependent upon him, and define the flourishing life as he defines it. He is calling you back to your creator king. And only until we understand what it means to really rest faith in Jesus Christ's work on our behalf, we will never know what it means to really work. But once you understand rest, you'll understand work. See, believer, the same is true for us. We must work to rest. That is, we must strive to rest in him so that work is part of what it means to be an image bearer. And we will only know how to work well when we know how to rest well. So we must work to rest. So that as we, we, can, we can do what God has done, and that is that at the end of a, a week, we can look back at that week and we can contemplate and we can admire and we can enjoy what God has done through us to benefit humanity, to benefit all those people that you serve. Believers, unbelievers. Whatever work it is that you do. But we all know that as we contemplate that work, we realize that there are some things that we should have done that we did not do. And there are some things that we did do that we should not have done. And yet, what do we do? We rest. We say, stop. It is finished. Christ died for that as well. And so I can enjoy my work. And I can look forward to the next week. Because there is a work that God has for me this coming week. And I can go out excited. God, you want me to make a difference in your name and whatever you've called me to do, to be the best I possibly can at it, knowing that I can rest. I can rest in Christ. Slaves, that's the good news. We get to have rest. God has called us to it. Father, thank you. Uh, we relate, Father. We relate to what they related to. Father, we know what it's like to be restless. But we thank you that your son, Father, took our sins in his body. He took all that we should have done, Father, that we didn't do this past week, and he took all that we did that we shouldn't have done, and he bore the wrath, your wrath, in his body shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, called people back into a new covenant through that blood. So the Father, as we take this meal now, we are reminded again uh, of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the work that you gave us to do this past week. We are grateful and we look forward to what you're gonna have for us to do this coming week. Please bless us, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen, amen.